You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are in, in Acts um, chapter 24, and, um, and uh, the last 21 through 28, the last uh, section of the chapter is really the trial of Paul. Um, the, the previous chapters, 13 through 20, is, is the missionary work of Paul, and, and he thought he was going to go on this mission trip back to Jerusalem. The Spirit wouldn't let him waver or hinder to go back to Jerusalem, back to his homeland, because he, he, he loved the Jews so much, even though they rejected the gospel. And so he's back there, again, at the beginning of the story where it started, but not for conversions, um, but for testimony, to stand trial. And, uh, and so um, we're, we're looking at, at, uh, at some of that um, in the theme today. Around 2004, um, I was uh, at a big school, Indiana University, Bloomington. There's about 40,000 kids there. And it's kind of like a, a progressive bastion in the middle of this like, pretty conservative block. All, all the progressive teachers come down there to like, uh, unconvert people or whatever. And, um, and so uh, I, I, was, um, I was voting for the very first time in 2004 on the Bush-Kerry election. It was the first election um, that I was 18, old enough to vote for. Um, and uh, it was an important one because if you remember, 2004 was right after 2001, so the war on terror was like a really big issue. And I remember uh, during that time that the, uh, the fervor and uh, some of the, the, the pitch um, personally with me and my dad and some of our conversations over the phone began to kind of escalate around those times when it comes to politics. I'd only been, I come from a non-believing background if you're new here, and I was just baptized in 2001, so I was only a Christian for a few years. And, and so my dad, I understand, you know, had a hard time sometimes separating the difference between, you know, like terror and imperialism, like the, the, the foreign affairs and the foreign policy of our government at that time was hard to tell the difference. Like, are we going over there to defend America? Are we going over there to go and, you know, create, um, entrench ourselves in terms of oil and markets, you know, over, over in other countries? Um, also, my dad, you know, I think has a hard time, still does, you know, separating like Christianity from just American whiteness, you know, like the evangelism of the world. Like, is that really about the saving of souls, the healing of brokenness, the uplifting of people, you know, in the name of Jesus, or is it about like selling McDonald's, you know? And it's just hard for him to tell the difference between those things. And I remember some of it because of, um, of boldness, but then some of it because of stubbornness, getting into more and more, not less and less conflicts around those types of, of, of issues with my dad. And it wasn't just him. I think the, the conflict even went beyond my skin and in between my ears, you know, into my own, own thought life. Um, I remember you know, some of the arguments that he would make, you know, the world is like John Lennon said, like, it'd be better without religion, right? Isn't religion just the way that we know God, which means that I know more than you, which means I'm better than you, which means I can point my finger at you. Like, isn't religion not only just not right, it's like the problem. Isn't religion the issue that's causing these wars and causing these, this turmoil on the earth? And wouldn't it be better to not have religion or not have, have Christians? And, and I remember sitting there, you know, in small group, arguing about Calvinism and the finer-tuned points of theology and be like, what are we really doing here? <laughs> that we're like, fine-tuning our ethics and, and micromanaging our behavior patterns and, and just seeing people that were around me that weren't believers and maybe didn't have a strong you know, moral compass in some ways feel like they were able to have more peace and more joy because they weren't so tied up in the rules and regulations you know, that sometimes Christianity or my faith was, was providing me. I remember going into sociology class and um, up there on the board, you know, for the question of the day was like, is Christianity a cult? <laughs> this was in uh, Indiana University of Bloomington, a religion, a cult, maybe. 
and it had like seven different things, you know, about like um, uh, cults creating circles around people of people that are in and people that are out, and they would have some elevated leader that would lead everybody into this great promise and this this warning of a doomsday to come, and and uh, and praying on on the spiritual week, and I and I had to get kind of disillusioned a little bit, like I was like, wait a minute, like. Is, is Christianity a community, or, or is it something else? Is it something uglier than that? And then there was these, you know, really satirical little videos that would come out, you know, about church and, and youth group, uh, where, um, where the guy would be like, come out to youth group, man. There's pizza, dude. There's games, dude. And then there's an adult that's going to talk to you, but he's got jeans on, dude, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of resonated with my dad's argument, like, isn't Christianity, isn't it just, like, pretty shallow? Like, there's monks out here, like, fasting and feeding orphans, and, like, you're going to tell me that, like, Jesus is the way, and his expression of that is more pizza, more games, you know? And uh, so, I, you know, I had to really, you know, wrestle with that. And, and I really do think there's a, there's a line in the, the line in the wish in the wardrobe where, you know, Aslan is saying, um, you know, Lucy, like, the reason why your world is bigger is because I'm revealing myself as bigger to you. Like, I need to show you something bigger. I need to show you a bigger world with deeper heartache and deeper sorrow and deeper mourning so I can prove to you just how deep my love is for you, you know, is, is kind of ultimately like what I think the Lord was teaching me. But here in Acts 24, um, Paul is, is put on trial to give a testimony that nobody gets saved for, to, to stand in defense um, of not really just himself, uh, but the gospel. The trial uh, makes its way, you know, first and foremost to this governor named uh, Festus, which we'll read about today, but uh, Felix, rather. But um, it's such a hot-button issue, like he doesn't want to take a stance on it because it would risk either offending the Jews, causing more and more riots in his colony, or it would cause him to lose political clout if he were to hand Paul over as guilty and the other higher authority would find him innocent, then he would lose some of his resume and his cred. So he remains neutral and he passes on the decision upward the ladder to Festus, and that's where we'll get to the next chapter in chapter 25, and Festus is the same. It's a hot potato politically that he doesn't want to manage, so he hands it up to the king, Agrippa, and then ultimately sends Paul off to Rome. And so in this trial, Paul is um, against this high-powered attorney that gets hired to come and uh, be the prosecutor of this trial. Paul is his own defense. But as we read the trial, what we're going to come to understand is that Paul's ultimately um, not defending himself. He's defending Christ. He's defending Christianity. And that as the world and the flesh and the devil and even sometimes our own doubts and confusion can conspire to try to attack the righteous one to call him wicked, that the Spirit, through Paul, defends Christ and Christianity to us in Acts chapter 24. Ask yourself, like, why does a book like this end in a trial? Like, you know, but then you think about it, like, don't all good Hollywood movie endings end in a trial? Like A Few Good Men, or uh, even I watched Big Daddy the other day with Adam Sandler with the kid where he has to go to trial to win, you know, the... the, the um, uh, the, the boy back, the custody of the boy, or my cousin Vinny with the Utes, remember that? My cousin Vinny ends in a trial. Um, uh, rear, or not Rear Window, um, 12 Angry Men, um, Skyfall, the James uh, Bond movie, Philadelphia, um, Liar, Liar, all these movies, they end, they end in court cases, you know, because in the court case, you get under the microscope to understand in the story what was right and what was wrong. And even more than that, who was right and who was wrong, and why what they did was right and what was wrong. And I think that's exactly what Luke is doing with us is, is he's, he's laying out before us the truth about wickedness and righteousness. Ultimately, the case is not Paul versus the Jews and the Gentiles. It's Jesus versus the world. That Jesus is the righteous one, that he is the blameless one. And so Paul's defense stands before us today because it's important to know, like we in our world today, in this courtroom, if you call it a courtroom, 
we're not ultimately the prosecutors, and we're not really even the defense. We're not the judge, and if we're a Christian today, we're not the jury because the verdict has already been decided. What we are is the testifier. We're the witness. And that's why the story ends this way in this trial thing, because at the beginning of the story in Acts chapter 1-8, it does not call us prosecutors or policemen or judges, but it calls us witnesses. Witnesses are not here to fight or to flee or to freeze, but to stand firm on what is true. And it's important to ourselves and to our kids and our kids' kids and our neighboring, um, our neighboring um, relationships to know who is right in this thing. And at the end of the day, when the story uh, finds itself to the courtroom in the case, like that ultimately Jesus is the righteous one, that he is innocent, and, and, and that his church, therefore, because of his blood and atoning sacrifice, is innocent as well. So if you'll pick up with me in chapter 24, it says this, uh, five days later, it says, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with uh, some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul. So this is a pretty high-profile case because Ananias is like the high priest. I mean, he's the pope of the Jewish church. I mean, coming down to this thing from 60 miles away. It started with like 40 guys that didn't like Paul and all took this vow that they were going to kill him in the chapter before. But apparently they're too busy to show up to this case. They send down the big dog with the big hat. And uh, also they bring along like Johnny Cochran, like the lawyer, Tatulis. He comes down there to like make this case um, and to stand against uh, Paul in this trial. And they go and make this case. And I want you to notice this. The case in terms of the prosecution is about five verses long, but only two of them have evidence and facts. The first three is just flat out flattery at its best. Okay. So watch this how he kind of does brownie points here and kisses up to the, uh, to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus uh, presented the case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought many reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. And in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Okay, so whatever they teach you in lawyer school back then, I don't know if they do that in Harvard anymore, but apparently it's to wax eloquent real quick in the beginning and really puff up the person that you're listening to. You'll see in contracts juxtaposition with you know, Paul's defense and how he speaks like there's a difference between you know, honor and flattery. The scripture says to honor authority. The scripture says to honor parents, to honor one another above yourself. Like honor is a beautiful thing, but that can't be conflated with flattery. You know, honor has to do with respect. Flattery has to do with control. And it makes sense in a legal proceeding, right? Like if I don't believe that God is an authority, then I need manipulation. And you consider that for yourself or for ourselves like, if I don't believe that God is in charge of those in charge, there's only one possible solution for me in terms of my self-justification mitigation is make friends and please enemies. And how exhausting that is as a lawyer to justify yourself, right? For us to vindicate ourselves and justify ourselves by people pleasing and keeping a great reputation and keeping our filters glossy on, on Instagram, right? Like all these things and energy that we use other than just speaking the truth. And so the language of, of heaven is honor, but the language of earth is flattery. It's always flattery because it's run on alliances. That's, I think, what's going on. So verse 5, we finally get to the case. These are the actual, actual accusa uh, accusations that are made against Paul and, and Christ, and really, I believe, the church today. But verse 5 says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker. The Hebrew word there, or the idiom, is actually like a plague, like out of the ten plagues, that bag. I mean, he's either a locust or blood or frogs or something, but he's really bad, and he's like, should be rid of the earth. It'd be better if Christians like this didn't exist, because he's a troublemaker. He's a plague, and he stirs up riots everywhere he goes. I mean, look at the riot that started in the city. This is why we're here among the Jews all over the world. And he's the ringleader, man. If we got rid of him, we'd get rid of all of them. He's the ringleader of this 
Nazarene sect, this secret selective little group that has cornered itself in this utopic little area over here and it's judging and pointing the fingers at everybody else. Verse 6 says, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So he seized him by examining him, your, and by examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about these charges, and we will bring them against him. So I spotted uh, three different accusations that, um, that the Jews towards the Gentiles were making towards Paul, and I think I can kind of see them uh, littered about um, in our conversations, in our social media conversations, and even in my relational um, talks with family and friends. And first and foremost is that um, the world would be better off without the church because it's judgmental and hypocritical. And it's blaming and finger-pointing. And uh, it just stirs up controversy everywhere it goes. I mean, isn't that basically what the Scripture does is it causes people to be the ins and the outs and the people that know God are better than people that don't know God. And so isn't religion the issue? Isn't that the reason the world is the, the way that it is? And if we got rid of religion, if we got rid of belief in Christianity, wouldn't it be just a better place? Second thing that I see, the mudslinging and the slandering and the flattering and things and so forth in this case, but I think in all terms, is that Christianity is just a, a cult. It's a sectarian little group where there's ins and there's outs, and when people come in, you love bomb them, and you tell them to cut ties and let the dead bury their dead and you know, leave their friends and their family, and it makes them more spiritually vulnerable that we can prey on them. And there's some leader that is elevated within there, and it's all this big farce. Isn't it just a clique? Isn't it just a, a sect? I think, I think that argument is, is still prevailing. And lastly, it's just a, a de- desecration. It's, it's just a shallow youth group thing with games and parties, and Tim Tebow goes to my church, and so you should go to my church too. Kind of a thing, right? Isn't that what church is, and isn't that why it would be better if, if we would rid the earth of Christians, I think is what the argument is saying. Now, um, in this little case, you know, Paul's on the defense, which means that if he's going to go and speak you know, to accuse the accuser, then everything would be stricken from the record, which in movies I'm always kind of like, well, I would probably say it anyways, because how can you really abstain that from the actual juror's memory, right? Like it gets said, so I would probably say it. So I'm not a lawyer, that's probably why. Um, Paul's not going to speak it because um, it's like, Paul, like, like Timothy said last week, like Jesus and the character of Jesus is to be led to the Lamb of the Slatter. It's not to vindicate yourself, it's to allow God to vindicate you for you. So he's not going to stand in his own defense. But Luke kind of does. And the truth of the matter is, if you go through all these, Paul was not the one that caused the riot. They misunderstood and thought that he brought a Gentile too close to the temple. They started the riot. He's been there for 12 days, and he's just there to feed the poor. Who started the riot? Number two, if there's anything about sectarianism, they just got in this stupid debate over the resurrection of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's the reason why Paul isn't even being judged by the Sanhedrin anymore, because they can't even agree about the schisms that are existed in their community, right? So sectarianism is unique to the church. And lastly, as far as the desecration of the temple, Jesus was turning those tables to tell him one thing, man. Like, why does Paul have to be the one bringing money? Why isn't the temple bringing money to the poor? Because that's what the temple is supposed to be for all the time, justice to the poor, right? Who's desecrating the temple is the point. So Luke's not saying it, and Paul's not saying it, but I will, like today to you. It's like Kyrie Irving, I follow basketball, right? Kyrie Irving did not get his vaccination. He didn't get vaccinated, so he had to take time off from the team. Uh, from the Brooklyn Nets, and, um, and then uh, he got kicked off of the team because of that. Ultimately, he left the team, and he went to go play for the Mavs, and he also lost his Nike contract. Did you know that? He lost millions and millions of dollars from the Nike contract because he, one tweet, that's all it takes these days. You tweeted one thing that had, it was about a documentary, and he was referring to something that wasn't dealing with anti-Semitism, but it had anti-Semitic remarks in the movie that he tweeted about. He was tweeting about a movie about something that somebody else said, and he lost Nike, okay? In the meantime, the new and up-and-coming star, John Morant, Big fan, Memphis Grizzlies, saw him in Charlotte, he's a great player. 
films himself after a, a Nuggets game in Colorado and an Instagram Live with just strippers everywhere. He's just in this strip club, and he's clearly drunk, right? And he's going crazy, and he pulls a gun up in the middle of this Instagram Live, and he's now on timeout from the team. And Nike's response is, because Kyrie Irving tweeted about something of a movie of an anti-Semitic remark that somebody said, we are cutting him from his billion-dollar Nike deal. But the response to John Morant was, we hope that he works on his mental health and he'll do better. <laughs> like, here's the moral story. The world does not need help from the church to be hypocritical. The world's doing fine on hypocrisy. I mean, that's just my stance. Okay? When it comes to, you know, sectarianism and exclusivism and all that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, so we got rid of Abercrombie and Fitch. That's not cool anymore. You're basically halfway to racist if you were, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch. I do, but I mean, they were hating on Asians, so I feel like I'm like, you know, have solidarity. Right? But, you know, but it should somewhat strike, you know, the philosophical tension there of like, if you're going to take out Abercrombie because they promoted good-looking, half-naked people to sell their clothing, I'm not sure how we're wearing any other brand, right, on our back right now, because pretty much the playbook from beginning of time to sell clothes is get good-looking, strong people and wear their clothes. Like, I'm not sure if we're really solving the problem, because I don't think the world needs any help from the church to be exclusive or clicky or elitist, Right? As far as, you know, the desecration of the, of the temple and shallowness of religion, like, in my growing years of experience of a Christian, like, it actually is more confirming to me about Christ and Christianity that any other religion in today's day and age will have people running to their defense, whether it be Muslim or Hinduist or, or Mormon or any other thing, anti-this, anti-this, anti-this. If there's one religion that you're allowed to slander and bash and not have any repercussion to, it's Christianity, and actually highlights to me the validity of it more than it undermines it when it comes to that. So you protest too much. And actually the accusations that are being made against Paul are pointing right back at this Jewish group. They are the ones that are causing the very things and the guilt that they are trying to suppose that Paul is doing. And so Paul stands for the defense in verse 10 when he says, the governor motions to him to speak. And Paul replies in a very one verse simple answer of honor, not flattery. I know that you're a judge. <laughs> I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I'll talk now. That's basically his honor. That he recognizes the role that he plays, the role that the judge plays, and ultimately the role that God plays, and he can rest his cards on that. Verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at this temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. And so what he's basically saying is, dude, I don't know how you think I did this, but I've been here for 12 days feeding the poor. I didn't start any riots. I'm not sure exactly how this got started, but I don't know how eloquent and powerful and influential you think I am, but I don't know if I even tried if I could start a riot in 12 days. Um, there must be something else here is kind of how he opens up, opens up the thing. And so I don't know about you, but like, I've been increasingly sort of bothered, you know, about... Um, how much uh, in our day-to-day -day conventional conversations and in social media there is, I don't know, maybe it's just in America, of like bashing the church. Have you felt that? Like just like how many times a Christian can just, because I have an Instagram thing, hop on there and tell everybody who the church is and what it ought to be doing. It's just, it's just profound to me. Like the church is just, oh man, it's just, 
so rich and the church is just in a bad shape. The church is just, you know, it's just so, so liberal. It's so woke and it's just going to go down the tubes and the church is like this. The church needs to do this. The church needs to do that. It's like when I think about the body of the church and the anatomy, like the body is the body and the head is the head. And I'm not sure as far as my conviction goes that I've been invited into church to tell who it is or what it's supposed to be doing, but to submit to it in love. That's the only, I think, invitation I think that we you know, have, have as a church. But aside from all that, aside from the accusational nature and probably some of the false narrative that goes on in terms of spinning on social media about where the American church is or what the church is, here's the truth of the church that we know probably from anecdotal evidence and experience, but also from the Bible. Like the church is doing fine. Church is doing fine with me or without me and with you or without you. The church is doing fine because it's full of Jesus. It's being taken care of by Jesus. The church is not going to be left astray because the church is the wife of Jesus and Jesus does not let his wife down. So the church is doing fine. And so here's what doesn't sell newspapers. And here's what's not sexy and here's what's actually kind of convicting, right? Is that I'm, you know, middle-class American guy and I fly over to Guatemala, you know, for a week. And there's people getting saved there. Like, I'm not talking about, like, you know, they went to the concert and their mom sent them along. Like, I'm not hating on that. I think people get saved in different ways. But, like, there's, like, girls that are getting rescued out of, like, severely abusive homes and then offering spas to people that are on mission trips. That's not possible without God. People are getting saved today, right now, because the church is doing absolutely fine. And the lady that's, that, well, she didn't start it, but she's the director of the thing. She's like my age. She's 38 years old. She and her husband were part of like a high-power high attorney, like uh, a firm over in Guatemala representing all these big businesses. And at 38, she leaves it all to go and serve and sacrifice and lead over there because the church is doing fine. Like it's, it's thriving. Like people are getting saved and people are leading and being transformed and that's not to mention the church in Iran, and that's not to mention the church in China, and the church in Taiwan, and the church all across the world, and the church in this room. And unfortunately, I think because of some of the, I mean, it's just, I mean, I guess you should say it's the code book from the very beginning. Like, we see one, you know, mega church pastor fall, and all of a sudden the sky is falling. But we forget about all of the people that have ever been saved and, and delivered and healed, all the volunteers that are surrounding that church. I mean, we just throw that out of the window, because I think we can sell newspapers this way. I think we can, we, can, we can curry up drama and gossip and all these things. And here's the ultimate idea, is if the church is not doing well, and if the church is unhealthy, and if the church is dysfunctional and, and, and disillusioned and deconstructing, well, then I don't have to give it loyal, submissive love, do I? Right? At the end of the day, like, like the attacks that come up against the church, I don't believe are really about the controversy that the church causes or the hypocrisy necessarily the church causes. I think it probably has to do with something deeper that gets down into the bottom of the passage. So the second challenge comes and the second defense comes. And the, remember, the second challenge was all about being exclusive and being a cult and, and being prideful and judgmental. And so verse 14, he stands against that and says, however, I admit, I am a worshiper of God, of our ancestors, and a follower of the way. I mean, that's the category you put me in, and that's a valid category. I'm a follower of the way inside of the covenant promise of Abraham. And they call it a sect. I mean, I'll let them have their language. But I believe, here's the truth about it is, I believe everything that they believe. I didn't subtract from it. I didn't oppose it. I believe Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law 
and the prophets, and I believe in that. And so verse 15 says, and I have the same hope in God as these men. In fact, it is the culmination. Jesus is the culmination of the hope of all the covenants of Abraham and David that Jesus has come to bring. There it is, the resurrection that we all hope for of both the righteous and the wicked. And so I strive. I don't do it because of works, but I work because of grace. I strive to keep my conscience to the great commandment before God and before man. That's what this is. And so I, I, I went up to uh, my professor, you know, the sociology professor that was asking, do I think that religion, you know, is a cult? And, uh, and uh, he ultimately told me, like, he's a Christian. And he was like, no, I mean, CrossFit's a cult. The church is a cult. <laughs> it's not bad to have a belief. Like, humans are going to be believers. They're going to believe in something. They're going to gather. They're going to join. Like, it's not, it's not about the quantitative. It's the qualitative measurement of, like, to what degree is that, is that belief healthy and unhealthy? And basically, this is what he said, and I went to college and brought it back to you for free, right? This is the main reason that keeps us, that, that makes us not a cult and keeps Christianity not a cult. You know what it is? This is the main reason, the main vehicle is the law and the prophets, it's the scriptures. You know why we promote, hopefully, in, this, in, in churches constantly and in multiple different denominations, the, the practice of reading scripture and checking whether or not your pastor is, is teaching the scriptures? is because the scripture is what keeps us from being a cult. The scriptures are very important to be reading and to be preaching and talking about. The scriptures, not quotes and tweets and blogs and books like Enneagrams, like the scriptures is what keeps us from being in a cult. Because basically this is what a cult is, right? The cult, the cult is about escape. It's about taking the law and transcending it because I have a heightened sense of reality, or I prayed and saw a vision, or because I know God and I met God now, and you should follow me because I know God, right? That's what it is. Paul and Jesus are saying, I didn't abolish the law. I didn't tell you that you don't have to love your neighbor anymore. I didn't tell you that there isn't, you know, sacrifice to be made. I'm not, I'm not telling you that there isn't keeping your house in order. I'm not telling you I'm above God. And so therefore, if Jesus isn't above God, then the church certainly isn't above God and has no belonging over there. No, I come up under the law to see it fulfilled, to see it fulfilled. And so I can only speak, you know, for my testimony, like realities, like is, is, the, is the church a cult? Like is this all just like a crazy thing? Well, it's like, well, here's the metric to me is like my faith has not led me to leave my father and mother and never have a relationship with them. It's strengthened my relationship with them. The leaders that I'm around, and I'm not saying all leaders like this in every church, but like you know, Scott Hafer, one of our elders, like since our building burned down, Scott Hafer is, you know, going through even medical things, has driven his car, all the who takes the same gas as yours takes and costs just as much as yours does, from Simpsonville to Swamp Robert property every day just to make sure that our building's in good shape and that there's no homeless people getting hurt over there. I don't know about you, but I've had, I mean, I've had a couple of bad leaders in my life for sure in churches, but I've had some incredibly loving, sacrificial people in my life that I wouldn't have known without the church. Like, these aren't gurus, man. These are shepherds that I've had in my life. And if I've seen that, I've got to account for that. I can't just take one megachurch pastor because it makes me feel good, point to them and say, that's why I don't believe in Jesus. When I have 99 other great pastors in my life, I'm accountable to both. You know, last and foremost, you know, like, am I being preyed on by, by being a spiritual weak person? It's like, I don't know about you, man. I got saved at 16. My family, most of my family are not believers. My, my parents are not believers. And Facebook is just the class act of high school reunions. You're just in a constant high school reunion because of Facebook, right? And you see your path with Jesus. And through some of the people that you used to hang with and run with, you see your path without it. 
Maybe God gave us Facebook for at least that one good reason, to see how your life would have been. I don't want to trade my life with the people that didn't follow Jesus. Church is a, is, is, is a community. It's a broken community. It's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's to be served in submissive love, and it's God's gift to the church. And so saying I love Jesus, but I hate the church is not loving Jesus. This is his bride, and it's doing great because he takes care of it. And so last but not least, um, about the shallowness. It says in verse 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts. There it is. The church is full of justice. Justice isn't like catching bad guys. That's not the extent of justice. Justice is shalom in the earth. It's bringing the poor alms and gifts to the poor. It's leaving the outside of your fields left for, for, for the, the orphans and the widows. That's pure religion. So what's Paul doing? He's doing what he normally does. He didn't get there to start a riot. He came there to be who he was, which is to spread gifts to the poor. That's what he did. So that's verse 17. That's the only crime he's committed. Verse 18, it says, well, I also like, became ceremonially clean when I came into these temple courts. He says, I, I walked in right relationship with Jesus. Like, I was filled with the Spirit, and so that doesn't mean that I'm better than you or I don't have to pay my taxes or like you should listen to me. No, it means that I'm actually going to become the greatest servant among you because that's what Jesus showed me is right relationship with you. And so I came in ceremonially clean. Like, that's who I am if you're mad about that. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who aren't even here. And he could have slandered. I mean, that's really the reason why this court case should just be done. If you show up to the court case and they put you in chains and they smack you on the mouth and they don't bring anybody to bring an accusation, you should just walk out. But he doesn't because the church is full of mercy. And maybe I wonder if Paul's thinking somebody might overhear my testimony be led to repentance because it's full of mercy. Or these who are uh, here should state the crime that they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was the one thing I shouted. And this is the reason. If I'm guilty of anything, like if you hate me for any reason, hate me because of this, it's because I stand for the resurrection. I think he's right. Like at the end of the day, like we can be as winsome and convincing and argumentative and strong and, you know, righteous and not hypocritical. But at the end of the day, Jesus said it, so it's probably true. They're always going to hate the church. You can't popular opinion or flatter any of that because at the end of the day, they hate the church because they hate Jesus. And our flesh even sometimes hates the church because it hates Jesus. And that's the only thing that really makes the church guilty and makes Jesus guilty is that it stands for resurrection, which the flesh opposes. And so after we ran around and we heard stories, you know, at the Guatemalan place uh, of all the girls. Girls, by the way, there's three of them that shared from high school. They sent all the little kids home. Like the girls could not say more than a sentence without crying. Like the lady who leads it, her name was uh, Gabby. She's like, this one girl, Eileen, I was so proud of her because the last time she couldn't say any sentences before crying, and now she actually said a sentence, and then she started crying. Like, this is like how powerful it is. My older sister was like sexually abused, and this is where my life was, and I know Jesus because I know Gabby. Like, they're getting saved. And you walk into these rooms, man, and it's like, it doesn't happen unless somebody just says, I want to give what Christ gave me. Those houses and the paint that's on those walls, love and care and stewardship 
and the dolls and the houses and the books over there are like 40 bucks that are, you know, that are set up into this house. And it's only the mercy and the justice of God that's on display for anybody that wants to come and see it. That's all, that's all there is. And they're running spas for these missionaries that are coming in. And they have nothing. They have nothing. But every single one of these girls, they share their story. And I've seen poverty in the West, and, 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 I've, and I've seen, it's really poverty anywhere, right? But like, poverty can bring about two things, right? It can bring about resentment, or it can bring about gratitude. And all those girls, when they shared their story, it wasn't about what, who did me wrong, and why these guys are against me, and why the authorities, it was just gratitude. Like, thanks, and thanks, and thanks, and thanks, because these girls are getting saved. And here's the other side of that story. So then they go home, and then we open up, and all the Tias, they share their story. And that's half of the magic down there is the fact that like the second that the new girl comes in, all of the other girls make a poster with her name on it and bring her in and accept them as one of their own. And they're experiencing probably love and community in ways that some of us sometimes don't experience, let alone these poor girls that are coming from these horrible backgrounds. And, these, and, and so these, these, these Tias, but, but the other thing is these, these ants, they came from the program. So they're instantly encountering people that have come from their background, walking out with Jesus and seeing leadership and wisdom and joy and all these things come out. And these these ants, they start sharing, and they're just like us. I mean, I'm pretty analytical, and I think too much. And they seemed like they were just in the moment all the time, and they just woke up to serve. And they seemed a lot happier than me, to be honest. But that was about the biggest difference. Because they just got up and loved strong every day and then went to sleep and did it again. And they ask for prayer requests. I mean, they're asking us to pray, you know, like, the one of them, it's like they're seeing all these salvations in their girls' group, but, like, their husband's not saved. And they got arrested. They're human beings, too. It's not like they're, you know, they deal with gender politics over there. They deal with COVID over there. They, they deal with all this kind of stuff, plus, plus poverty. And here's the only math problem that I can come. Like, those girls are getting saved, but that salvation doesn't happen around, but through sacrifice and suffering. That's the only equation. That place does not exist without the Tias. And those Tias don't get there except for Jesus. And so here's, here's ultimately what I, what I see in this passage is like, why are we here? You know, If there's anything Paul says that I'm guilty of, it's the resurrection of the dead. Here's, the, here's what I'm guilty of. Jesus came to me and offered me a life exchange. He offered me my life of persecution and hatefulness and bigotry and self-loathing and spiritual blindness He said, you can give all that to me and you can give me your life and I'll give you mine fully. I will give you my life for your life. This is what he's offering in terms of the resurrection. If there's anything you hate in me, it's because I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and that offends you. And so here's ultimately, I think at the core crux of most of the attacks on the church. I mean, some of the attacks on the church is because of phony Christians. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think that we need to call spades a spade. But but at least some of the attacks and the indictments and the accusations that comes to the church. They don't come from theology. They don't come from practice. They don't come from the practice of, of religion. You know where they come from. They come to the church because people don't like the gospel and they just want to do what they want. Like that's really where the accusation comes down to. If there's anything you hate about me, it's because God has offered me life and it offends you. And that the life that is put on display sometimes in your lives and in my, in my life and you know, in the lives of these Tias and these ants over here, costs us suffering and sacrifice, and oftentimes we're offended at the cost that it takes to have. 
And so here's what I think ultimately, you know, is at, at, at the center of criticism towards the church. I mean, some of it is hypocrisy, right? But some of it is just like, I want to spend money the way I want to spend it, and I don't like the possibility that that's not righteous. I don't like that. And I will find lots of false accusations or half real accusations or whatever it is I can do to slander and cut down the church and talk about it like it's bad and talk about Jesus like he's bad because I don't like the way it makes me feel. I want to have sex with who I want to have sex with. A lot of times some of the gender politics stuff that we're talking about, like it's coming from people that have no experience in it and don't even know anybody like it. And to be honest, it has more to do with the fact like I like that narrative because it presents us with the ability to do with what, whatever we want. I want to do what I want. That's what this is about. And if we, if we unravel ourselves with flattery and opinion winning and performance and fear of man, thinking that we're going to somehow woo people into this uncritical bias towards the church as if the church is going to win some argument that ultimately like they're going to put down their offenses towards Jesus like it didn't happen when he was here and he promised it wouldn't happen after he leaves. They hate the church because they hate Jesus. And we hate Jesus sometimes in our flesh because we want to do what we want. And it doesn't have to do with the church's hypocrisy. It doesn't have to do with clickiness. It doesn't have to do with shyness. It just has to do with, stop telling me what to do. I want to do what I want. But I think my experience and your experience as well, we know, like, ultimately we think that offering our life to others as a human, as a, as a spiritual sacrifice to others in charity and justice and love, to give our life up, we kind of know we find it. And ultimately, to try to keep our life and save our life and collect our life and defend and self-justify ourselves, in all that self-justification, we ultimately lose everything. And that, I think, is what is on display, is that Paul is walking into this temple, and they hate him for it because he represents Jesus. So these are the questions that I have um, for us to consider this week before, um, before communion. Um, but it's just about standing with Jesus. At some point, we don't get to say, I don't know, just ask my dad. I'm just telling you what he told me to say. Like, we don't get to pass on the verdict. I don't know, go ask my pastor. I don't know, go ask Rick Warren. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to believe. Like, at some point, if we're a community, not a cult, like, we, we submit ourselves to the scriptures, and we stand. We tell the truth. I mean, as far as the first one there, in terms of judgmentalism or, or mercy, like, I think what I was learning with my dad is, like, try, learning the tight walk balance of defending without being defensive, I don't think it's wrong, you know, to apologize for the Crusades. I don't think it's wrong to admit, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. I don't think it's wrong to admit when pastors fall, it's not a great thing. But when we do that, we shouldn't also ignore the fact that there's beautiful things going on in our churches and there's beautiful people that have done beautiful things for you so that you would know Jesus. And if we talk about one narrative, you know, without the other, I don't know if we're doing mercy justice at all in the first place. But how will we stand? At some point, we have to take a stand, not to be the prosecutor, not to be the attorney, not to be the judge, but to be the, the witness, to stand. Secondly, um, standing for the sake of justice. I know the guy um, over in Guatemala, I loved his little sermon illustration. You know, we think of chosenness as this like strict, systematic, theological thing that makes you go to church over here and doesn't allow you to talk to these people over here, right? But like chosenness, I understand from a biblical standpoint, and then also just like the way the guy's talking about it, he put a Coke and a cup and an orange, and he was like, look, God can choose who he wants to choose. But the difference is, in terms of the way that I think he was seeing it versus the way that I've usually been taught to see it, is that the chosenness isn't about you becoming superior, it's about you becoming a servant. If we're chosen for anything, 
to be separate, to be set apart. It's not to be a cult. <laughs> it's to serve. It's, it's to have a blessing to give to others and to spread the blessing to the earth. That's the point, that the Jews would, would give to the Gentiles the way they didn't, the way that Jesus ultimately did. And so ultimately, do we stand um, for justice for the outsider? I think that's what it is. It means to witness. Lastly, um, shallow, shallow or righteous. I mean, at least at, at face value, I think we could, we could take that, you know, this case is not really about Paul. It's about Christianity. When Paul stands to defend, he's not really being self-defensive. He's not defending himself. He's defending Jesus. But he's pretty innocent too. And I think the scriptures would say to us, like even this side of heaven, that that attorney went and tried to get into his mail and his email and get into his track record and tried to find anything against him. And Paul was able to stand blameless. And I think that's the promise. It's saying not, this, not the other side of heaven, God's going to you know, fix me when I get there. Like that he is saying that there is an opportunity and an invitation to walk in righteousness so that our neighbors and our enemies and our friends, if you were to ask anything about them, that they could hate nothing about us except for Jesus. Like if they chose to hate Jesus, then that's fine. But other than that, they don't hate me because I'm a jerk. <laughs> I'm not getting persecuted because I'm a jerk. It's because I love Jesus. And, he's, and I think that this, this thing is, is offering an opportunity to us of something possible that I think sometimes we categorize as impossible, which is to walk in righteousness, to walk in blamelessness, is a witness. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.